Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Happy to be joined again today by Josh Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. How was your week off-ish, Josh? It was, you know, it was good. A lot of pool time. Uh, you know, I think is the nature of these things go. Maybe this is just life or maybe this is life in 2022, but you know, ups and downs. Yeah. Right. But, well, but mostly, mostly very nice. Yeah. You know, it's hashtag blessed. I think, yeah, I think we've, you know, yeah, we've given up on <laughs> salad days. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Right. I was like, <laughs> good enough is what I'm going for <laughs> usually. Well, you know, it's funny. You and I were talking about this as you came back about, you know, you were saying it seemed maybe kind of quiet last week. Kind of. But you were also probably, you know, I mean, at the pool. And I was think, purposefully not I mean, looking. You know, there's, yeah, there's been a lot going on, I think, in certain kinds of ways. Now, not in the, I mean, obviously, there's a few big headline things, but, you know, the Comptroller's report on, you know, up uh, upgraded uh, estimate of the, the, bi- the biennial revenue estimate. Big story, a bunch of, you know, um, a lot going on. But I think what we want to focus on today, which I think is arguably the biggest story of the week at least going into the week and a big important thing overall as i think will become clear at least that's what we think um you know i want to focus on the report that was issued this past weekend by the house investigative committee on the rob elementary shootings um now this report was released on sunday attendant to a convening of the committee in uvalde with community members um you know, a little background on the committee. This was, you know, pursuant to, you know, a request slash decree by the governor. Uh, the Senate and the House you know, both formed committees. The two committees have taken kind of different approaches. I think we've we've talked about the Senate committee in here a couple times. The House committee was um, a different kind of committee that that Speaker Dave Phelan put together, um, chaired by Dustin Burroughs. Uh, Republican and yes, that Dustin Burroughs ally. Yes, that <laughs> Dustin Burroughs and and you know as much as you can sort of uh, settle on these categories, more or less an ally of of obviously a trusted person as far as it goes by the Speaker, um, Democrat Joe Moody, who has also been he's you know a Democrat but somebody who has been comparatively aligned with the speaker shall we say and i would say, and I would say respective respectfully active in the space yeah i mean had been you know was given emphasis a, on respect yeah was given a position in the chamber by the speaker etc um and then you know a, a, an interesting selection i thought at the time and you know but i mean explainable in political terms then former chief justice uh, uh I'm, I'm not chief justice yeah, former uh, justice of the supreme court eva guzman uh you know, who had recently Former finished third in, as general. a candidate in the race, pardon me, for attorney general. So, um, and then, uh, uh, you know, a bucket of staff members. And, you know, they had a series of executive session hearings, meaning hearings that were 
held not in the public eye, took a lot of testimony, promised to produce an interim report. This interim report was distributed Sunday to to great interest. Relatively quickly. I mean, I'd say the process. Yeah. And and I think, you know, we're going to have a lot to say about the report. But I mean, you know, just to get it out front, I mean, you know, they did a service with the report. Yeah, I think so, for sure. You know, I I think particularly given... uh, uh, you know, the very erratic and often contradictory release of information and, you know, frankly, you know, the politics and blame shifting that have been going on, you know, across the political system, you know, uh, across principles, including the leadership of the state. And I think there was a real hunger for something that synthesized what we think we know up to this date, including some things we don't know, and we'll talk a little bit yeah. about that. But I think, you know, as I remember my first read of the document on Sunday afternoon. Um, Lazy Sunday. It was nice to have, I mean, nice is the wrong word. You know, you know, it was engaging and useful to read a comprehensive kind of accounting of some of the things that we know to date. You know, particularly... You know, the background of of the, the shooter, attacker, as we say, you know, the attacker is the term they use in the in the report. Right. Um, you know, a, and a an attempt at constructing a linear narrative of the response. Now, you know, journalistic outlets have done this and they've done, you know, not a terrible job. But I mean, there's just been so much dispute. And the, and the I, I thought the committee report does a good job of sort of flagging some of those disputes, but not getting too bogged down into the, you know, I think a lot of the mentions of, well, there was an account that said this, but then that was later corrected, wound up in the footnotes, I I think, for the most part. Yeah, I mean... You know, there's not a lot of, I mean, in a few places, I think where there's still open questions, it's in the body of the text, but a lot of it is kind of relegated to... You know, other than, you know, and I know this is something you notice want to talk about, other yeah. than the kind of shots at the press and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I mean, but. there was definitely an attempt in the report, I think, to play it straight, you know, so much as playing it straight occurs within some pretty clear boundaries. Right. Right. And I think, you know, and I said, as, as people yeah. who've, who've followed this, you know, very closely, you know, and I'd say closely professionally and more closely than I'd probably like personally. Yeah. It's not like reading the report. You don't come out with a better understanding, I think, of, yeah. of, of, of sort of a, a picture of really what what happened that day and what didn't happen, maybe a little bit less. But no, I think that's right. I think that's right. And so, you know, to that extent. And again, I mean, you know, hats off to the staff. I mean, you know, I, you know, if someone out there hears this and knows better, correct me. But obviously, you know, the staff did most of the work in the composing of this report, I yeah. would assume. Yeah. Because that's how things work. And, um, you know, they they did a good job of this, I think. Um, so let's talk about it. So top lines of the report. You know, we're, you know, you, you know, we have some notes sort of, you know, tell us a little bit about the top lines in the report, yeah. Josh, based kind of on, you know, you've got, you know, we've got notes sort of arranged in the order that they're presented in the report. And I'll come back to that because I think there's some interesting things about that. So yeah, and that's, that? yeah. And, and that's the thing. I mean, I think, you know, as far as this goes, it's, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's one of these things. This is, I mean, we've been talking about kind of talking about this. Once you and I have read, both read this, like it's the only thing we can think about because it's such an interesting document in yeah. some ways. And there's a lot of aspects and sort of ways you could look at this. That I think we'll kind of we'll we'll kind of go through. You know, talking about the top lines of the report, and th- and I think about I'm presenting this in the order that it's presented in the report, and I think that's important because I mean, is that if you know you're a professor, 
Dr. Henson. I'm not. I'm just a researcher, but ultimately tell people to like organize their arguments. So you kind of do look at the order of things to kind of understand emphases, et cetera. So I think yeah. it's worth starting there. Yeah, I, I, you know, it's something I wrote for this day, you know, rhetorical strategy. It's a rhetorical strategy. So, so if we go in the order, present the report, you know, I mean, the first top line is, you know, the school wasn't prepared culturally nor physically. And culturally, I mean, you know, there's this sort of doors were left unlocked all the time. There were safety protocols that were kind of routinely ignored for reasons that are explained, I think, in the report. But this is sort of the top line. This is the first thing we talk about is the school. I think right. that's what the section is titled and kind of how, where the school came up short in the lead up to this and during right. it. The next uh, sort of big top line of the report is that, you know, first responders really failed to prioritize saving lives and then failed really to coordinate their response after that. I mean, once they had kind of settled into this sort of defensive posture, right. big, big, you know, lack of coordination and big, big lack of leadership. Uh you know, then there's a very long section about the background of, of the attacker. And the takeaway, I think, there is that, you know, it seems like a lot of people thought that the attacker might be a, be a danger. He was making, you know, continuous, though sometimes kind of veiled threats. And yet, you know, no one... Prior really, to the attack. Prior to the attack. Yeah. And yet no one really seemed to take him or that danger really terribly seriously. Now, it does raise the question of had they taken it seriously, right. what would the next steps have even been? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, yeah, there's a lot of, que yeah, there's a lot of questions. I mean, that is an interesting... You know, not to jump ahead, but I mean, it's an implicit point of emphasis, I mm -hmm. think, in that account mm -hmm. that there were several instances where people around him detected, war you know, what we would think of retrospectively as warning signs. Yeah, I mean, look, it's... It's true. I mean, whether it's a failure of individuals around this person, whether family members, loose, you know, loose acquaintances or whatever, or of society in general, that like someone can kind of jokingly be called school shooter repeatedly by multiple people as he's making these veiled threats and it kind of never gets escalated. I mean, that's sort right. of just a, another discussion for another it, day, it, but it does. But it does. Yeah, but it doesn't trigger any kind of response. And that's pretty kind of par you know i mean i think that's one of the things that the the, the report is is sort of flagging we should also mention i mean as you know the preface of the report is very explicit about the fact right. that this is an interim report mm -hmm. they will continue you know, they they will learn intend more to continue to work um and you know the preface you know has a lot of you know i mean they're caveats and i don't mean that in any derogatory way yeah. where they say look you know some of this might may turn out to be wrong yeah we will certainly find out more. There are sources of information we don't have. Now, I do think in a couple of spaces they use that as to prepare the ground for some evasion. Yes, but nonetheless, you know, it, it is fair to say that, you know, they're, they are promising more to come. Right. And, and they acknowledge, you know, that there are, you know, limits to what they know right now. So then after kind of the top line, so this is what the, how the report was organized, the next sort of piece of this, I think, is kind of what was the media response to this, which I think was pretty good for the most part. And I was kind of yeah. scouring through the articles, but then sort of the takeaway articles, you know, so like, what right. are the four things, what are the five things, what are the six things? And they really kind of, I think, seized on four major pieces of the report. Number one, you know, the size of the law enforcement presence there that day, you know, it said almost 400 officers. Uh, the lack of sort of incident command leadership and the lack of communication. So that's one kind of bucket of just yeah, sort of. And, and I think that, you know, mo most of the accounts that I have read lead with that. Yes. That's, you know, that, that's the, the lead is broad swath of law enforcement failure across federal, state, and local agencies in general terms as a summation of the report. Yeah. And I think there's also something there. And I mean, you know, not to, I mean, look, 
once you start interpreting something, you interpret it, right? Yeah. And so I think there is an asset to this that I think is kind of obvious, and I'll just say it, which is there is sort of a, a media response to this that says, hey, look, here was another mass shooting. And by the way, there were 400 cops there. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, is it well, in, and I think that's worth, you know, I, you know, that's worth flagging, you know, explicitly that one of, you know, and I, I, I don't know, if, I think this was the first time that we had seen this thorough an accounting of the personnel. But I mean, the report actually yeah. says it's what? 376. 376 law enforcement personnel. I, I counted it for the thing, I think for 18 different agencies. Something yeah, something like that, like that. Around that. But mostly um, 150 or so border patrol agents, about 91 DPS officers, right. and then about, so, you, know, you know, teens or, or handfuls of other. Right. And then, you know, and again, I mean, there's not most of the agencies in that rural, you know, predominantly rural region don't have a total of 90 personnel yeah no at all no so So that's one uh you know there's a seizing on sort of this this, as you already kind of mentioned this seemingly kind of fundamental systemic failure critique which i think we're going to come back to another sort of big you know sort of you know sort of the interpretation of the report is you know either that you know school safety fell short the locks the communication systems or was too relaxed due to a number of factors we're talking about these bailouts which is basically when a uh a usually i mean i think i don't know if it's a large number but a number of undocumented immigrants in a vehicle are trying to get away from border control and essentially crash the vehicle and then scatter right and and this sort of this has been triggering uh, a large number of lockdowns in the schools including deployment of randomization yeah well (laughs) well anyway you know so either so number of factors bailouts old infrastructure bad communication systems even some of the substitute you know the, the use of substitute teachers will come back to this and then, you know, the other general, you know, the last sort of general media responses, you know, the reporting of a newer, at least more comprehensive accounting of the attacker's background right. kind of led up to that. So that's sort of, those are, the, those are the two pillars of kind of the broad kind of, here's what the report kind of was, how it was organized. Here's what the media response is. And I think the next thing we should kind of talk about before we get into some of the more of the politics of this, which is really what this podcast is about, right, is sort of the other high level takeaways. And these are yeah. things that like, I think, you know, going back to what I was thinking was, and this is like, you know, you and I have been following this really closely. And what are some other things that kind of stand out to me, I guess, or you right. as, yeah, as sort ahead. of a reaction to this thing? So, you know, the first thing I say is, you know, obviously, you know, this is a political document. I mean, I don't want, you know, <laughs> there's gambling going yeah. on here. I mean, the report opens and closes with, with sort of not very veiled digs at the media, first for reporting and then correcting the inaccuracies propagated by uh, the state. Uh, and then for releasing information before the committee was done with its report, you know, which is sort of high profile thing they got with the video release and some other stuff. Yeah, yeah. The video release, I think, was, you know, and just to make sure people know what we're talking about. I mean, early in the week prior to and actually it might have even been the previous Sunday night or early the, the Monday, a week before the report mm-hmm. came out, um, there had been a lot of discussion about the compilation of video that had been that the committee and some of the investigating agencies had. An edited version of that made its way into the hands of the, uh, the American, the Austin American statesman, K, yeah. you know, KXAN, and the increasingly ubiquitous Tony Paletsky. Yeah, um, uh, and I mean that as a compliment. Yeah, Tony. I say he was good before should, he was. You hear this? He was good before he was increasingly ubiquitous. So right, I and say that. Um, you know, there was a lot of bad feeling about the fact that that had been that that video had been leaked. You know, some criticism of the statesman and KXAN for releasing it prior to the committee, although I think for the most part, you know, it was, and and, and it became, you know, like in strictly political terms, I mean, I'm sure there were some people that were unhappy about it simply because it was yet, you know, it created yet another news cycle or two, you know, use a quaint term, 
you know, at the national level in which right. this, you know, the, the, you know, I certainly in flipping through, you know, the major cable channels saw this footage many times in the following week on the major cable networks and all of them. Right. I'm sure they would have much rather released it in the context that they wanted. Yes. So, you know, something else that kind of stands out, this is kind of, you know, broad, but I mean, there are a lot of habitual like themes of Texas politics in this report. You know, <laughs> it, you know, you've got an under-resourced school district kind of making do with what it has. You have, you know, a student in this case kind of falling through the, the very large cracks in the system repeatedly. Yeah. Uh, you know, poverty. Uh, you know, especially rural poverty. I mean, I would say rural infrastructure is something that kind of comes yeah. up in this if you think about it. And then, you know, the thing that's kind of leading the next is, you know, blaming the feds, blaming, you know, immigrants in terms of the breakouts and, and, and really, you know, the kind of through theme in a lot of ways, you know, blaming the locals. Yeah, and I, and I think it's worth decomposing that just a little bit. I mean, you know, in terms of the, you know, look, it's an election year in Texas. And so there has been, from the very first moment, a lot of consciousness of who was going to be blamed for this. Now, that is going to happen whenever something goes wrong in a really big, fundamental, dare we say, systemic way. Right. <laughs> um, to, to use the language of the report. Um, and, you know, in an election year, that is going to be even more pronounced. You know, I think you have to be willfully... Uh, what's the word? I don't ignorance, not the right word. I mean, I think you have to be will, a little willfully naive to say that, you know, efforts to say, hey, the federal government, you know, really, you know, sort of snotty remarks about the federal government, um, you know, a lot of emphasis on, you know, uh, uh, the role of, um, you know, the immigrant pursuits, you know, prior, you know, that they had sort of softened the system and, you know, made made teachers and administrators and law enforcement, you know, a little lax about security alerts at the school. Yeah. You know, that all, you know, resonates so strongly. Yeah. With the political environment of the moment. Yeah. I, you know, you you know, there's no way that there's not some self-awareness that that resonance is going to be there when you're writing this report. Now, that doesn't mean you should omit them or whatever, but it, well, it's there. And spoiler alert, it was the federal government's police force that actually decided to breach the room, apparently, at least in the report, at no direction from the incident commander yeah. or anybody, as far as we can tell, at least at this point. They made a decision. Look, in some ways, you know, but but even in that, I mean, and this is well, getting we'll get, into the weeds of the report, we'll but even in that, the report is a little implicitly I would even say implicitly I, you know the report to me again in the composition of it very directly makes sure that the reader knows that yes as everybody right. has heard ad infinitum in the last 2 months uh uh Uvalde ISCISD police chief Arredondo made you know bad decisions they're very direct about that in the report you know was you know ha, you know has some responsibility for delaying the response right but they're pretty clear when they summarize the document to also say and by the way the federal guy you know the federal forces that did ultimately lead the breach were also waiting for gear a rifle rated shield a rifle rated shield etc and they also waited yeah a while after arrival to actually go in so 
Yeah, let's all. <laughs> you know, and then we'll get back to who's not mentioned in that account. But so, it's, it's pretty, you know, it's pretty direct. And I want to pause and just yeah. say, what I would say to people also, just I would urge you, look, it's 77 pages. It's not. It's not actually 77 pages. Well, yeah, because it's a little shorter than that, I guess. Or actually, as a document, it's a little longer, depending on how you read it. But it's, you know, yeah, 70 something pages. You know, it is very worth anybody's effort who is interested in this or even has feelings about it, frankly, to read the entire report. Right. And to read it, you know, with some care. Right. So going back to kind of some takeaways here, you know, about blaming the locals. I mean, one of the interesting things you go a little bit deeper, I mean, to me, that's interesting, I guess, is, you know, you've all these CISD, despite the fact that, you know, again, the beginning of the report kind of describes how the school, you know, basically the school is the first point of kind of failure, at least as a priority emphasis in the report. But I mean, Uvalde CISD was described as one of the few Texas school districts that have actually submitted a viable active shooter policy. Now, did they seem to have implemented hor- horrifically? Yes, yeah. they failed at implementing it. But they also was one of the few districts that have spent state funds to upgrade security allotted in 2019. They spent on cameras, fencing, magnetic entries at some schools. I think this is kind of partially what we talk about when we talk about hardening. So in some ways, you know, you kind of look at this and you say... Yeah, but like, weren't they doing everything that they're supposed to do? Again, this is just kind of one of my takeaways. And stuff. I mean, I understand that the implementation was poor, but the truth is, from what we've seen, you know, and, this is, and the report makes this point, there's 80,000, probably over 80,000 buildings in Texas that house school-age children at some point during the day. Yes. There's a lot of facilities to manage. There's 1,200 school districts. You know, ultimately, you read this report, you realize, you know, we're talking about this one school, and we'll kind of come back to this. But like you could be talking about any school, and this school yes. actually seemed to be doing a lot of the things that the legislature had wanted them to do. I mean, they had its own police force. They, and they had wave a, in that direction. Yeah, I mean, they the have report a report waves in that direction. I mean, you know, again, Arredondo had some big failures, but I mean, they have a police chief with experience. They have a force. They're spending this money. They have a plan. Like they're actually doing what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Um, you know, I kind of think you know, I think this is under the blaming the locals. Yeah, I mean, the talk about the school again. You know, I say there's no villains, but quote, you know, a, re- a regrettable culture of non-compliance. Yeah, and it's hard to, to come away then say you know this, the like the, the most the newest school in the, in Uvalde CISD was built in like 1980 something. You know, they describe the maintenance situation in which you've got basically non-experts going around watching YouTube videos to fix the locks, which, by the way, like the maker of went out of business last year and can no longer yeah. even be achieved. There's a reason there's 50, 60 keys. You know around this thing. And then the other, you know, sort of blaming the locals theme is, you know, the sustained focus on Arredondo, which is, you know, it's an odd tension yeah. in this whole document, right? And, and it's hard, and this is the thing that I sort of took away from this. You know, I think it's easy to have a lot of contempt for Arredondo and, I, you know, say, Mistake, and, yeah, mistakes, mistakes, were mistakes were made, I'm sure, but the thing is, yes, we're, we're made by him and he's going to have to live with what he could have and should have done differently for the rest yeah. of his life. But it's hard to read this document and not come away with the conclusion that Erdogan was not the incident commander in any functional sense. Yeah, and, and I think that when and and look, they this is one of those areas where you know the rhetorical approach of you know there are you know there is a rhetorical approach in this document, mm-hmm. and the treatment of Erdogan is a very complex part of this because on one hand. I, I, you know, seems to me the committee, the authors are conscious that, you know, he was the first available scapegoat. Everybody mm-hmm. knows that, you know, to foreshadow where we're going, you know, the the director of DPS, Steve McCraw, was fair, very critical of him and very directly critical of him. Mm-hmm. Others have been very directly critical of him. He's done himself no favors by giving some uneven accounts right. 
um, including an early interview with the Tribune, which I'm sure he's now regretting. Um, but that said, I, you know, as you say, there were a lot of other things going on here. And it's one of the areas where the report, as we said at the beginning, provides a lot of clarity, but it also subtly reinforces some of the narratives that have been built out there around, you know, what the reflexive assignment of blame is going to look like going forward and as we look back on this. You know, the thing that I think struck me the most, and I mean, that stuck with me the most in the report in terms of thinking about it this way was, you know, in the going through this section on the response of Arredondo, they, they, a lot of people point out, well, he wrote the active school shooter policy. And the first thing I think to myself, yeah. I, the first thing I think to myself is, okay, of the f- 376 officers on site that day, how many were aware that maybe one of kind of the the least trained kind of, you know, in terms of departmental ranking officers is now in charge of this whole entity. I mean, the idea that like, you know, there's no mention of this, that any of the DPS officers there or any of the Border Patrol officers yeah. or anybody else was aware that there was an active school shooter policy that yeah. placed Arredondo in charge. Number one. Number two, if you actually then look at the policy, which they lay out in the report. And, and let me put something oh, ahead, in there yeah, just before you move on to the second, to the second part of the yeah. policy. Well, actually, maybe you're going to say it. Go ahead and go to the policy thing. Well, I'll say then when you, they lay out the actual policy, the the response that was supposed to be engaged in by Arredondo, it's very clear that from the minute he was inside the building in the hallway, he was not the incident commander. Because he, because he could not have done any of the right. things that the policy laid out. And so in that sense, you know, no, look, and whether he did this at full awareness of that or not, his initial thing is like, I never thought of myself as the incident commander. Right. I, you know, is somewhat consistent. Now, he could have made a different decision. He could have yeah. left the immediate scene and gone and set Which up Which is what he probably post. should have done based and on the policy. that's probably what he should have done, given... You know, but, but there's also, you know, I mean, that same policy that people are pointing to and that the report is very explicit at pointing to and saying, you know, in the policy he wrote, he was first on the list of, right. of, of you know, incident commanders, but there was a list. Yeah. And there the were sh- other people below that that could have taken over once he... Right. It was clear that he was in the building and for whatever reason wasn't going to leave. And that's the other key part. And so you go from there and you say, okay, and this is what's interesting about the report. It, says in some ways, you know, it lays out that, you know... His policy says he's the incident commander. It lays out what that means, and then it kind of moves on to the next thing. You say, "Huh, okay." <laughs> yeah. But the next thing is, well, what what is this this incident commander? You know, again, and I should say, you know, I am so very much a civilian, so feel free to right. <laughs> limbass anything I say. But basically, you know, from my understanding of it as a as a very informed and interested layman here, the next piece of this is, well, what? How does how does incident command get passed on? Right. And it goes through that process. And what's clear to me, again, as sort of a someone just kind of reading this and trying to understand it is that, you know, the incident command piece is very fluid, usually, especially at the beginning of these incidents. The first right. person who arises by definition, the incident commander, whether it was Arredondo or not, yeah. he would have been probably the incident commander because he was there. But the idea is, and I my understanding from reading it, is that at that point, you kind of pass it on and up. And yeah. part of that, it seems from reading the report is, is that one, you want to pass it on to higher ranking officers with more authority. Number two, you want to pass on the information up the chain. Number three, by passing the information on, then that now now right. in charge officer can delegate the responsibility to create the organization and, that wasn't there. And the report, to be fair to the authors of the report, the report does do a good job of, you know, in some ways, you know, dropping him, dropping other in the oil, but also stepping back and saying, and this is where they're talking about a systemic breakdown. There's a lot about the, the flawed information flow. There's a lot about 
you know, the, the lack of infrastructure for this, lack, you know, and a lack of communication. So I don't want to, you know, get no, abs- too, too, too bogged down and all that. But uh, no, absolutely. But I think but the point is, the report walks up to the point of saying, yeah, you know, this is what we would expect to happen. And then they say, and it didn't moving right. on. Yeah. And that's sort of and that's sort of I think, you know, to, to real quick. I mean, the, as far as political omissions go, the one that like stands out is, I mean, one of the two sort of big ones, really, yeah. is, you know, the Department of Public Safety had 91 officers there that day. And I believe that's the first time we've seen that number. I I'm could pre- be wrong. I'm pretty sure it is. And so, you know, while the individual failings of Arredondo and the Uvalde police are, are they're kind of this great, great detail, everything that's going on around their involvement outside of the hallways, outside of rooms 111 and 112 is basically described somewhat breezily as systemic failure without any sort of further content. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple direct... little, you know, schematic details. Um, you know, as you said, you know, you were saying earlier, I mean, there were before we came on you know there's a couple of references of a couple of things that a dps person does yeah right but there's no real kind of sense of how they intersected it's almost as if they were outside of the systemic failure and i think this does move back to like you know one you know critique i would have of the coverage is that and and again I think the rhetorical approach of the report encourages the pattern in the coverage right. that says, oh, they damn all law enforcement. But if you really go and look closely, they come down hardest on the locals. And then also, as I was saying earlier, take a couple of, you know, very subtle, but I think still kind of pokes at the fe- at, at the federal officials like, hey, these guys, you know weren't heroes either right it's almost the you know the implication and the state level officials are almost entirely absent from the narrative it's really i mean what's curious to me about it is you know again taking i mean you know again it's sort of like it's like a play right it's like what's going on off stage but like you know to take the report and you know they're sort of trying to acknowledge that you know there's information flowing outside the room outside the building among the officers about you know there's children on the phone with 911 in the rooms and part of what, you know, what I would wonder, just to throw this out there, if I'm it's like, so who heard that when? Yeah. Who knew what outside? Because ultimately, you know, I think, you know, I understand. And look, it's a it's a crazy situation, obviously. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you get in there, I think, you know, obviously in the first, I mean, I can imagine if you're standing outside as a law enforcement officer, even with the best intentions, you know, how long is too long to wait when you think when when you think that you're reacting to the information that you have in front of you, right? You know, it says yeah. is five minutes too long, is ten minutes, what's going on? But at some point, you know, you think after like 20, 25, 30 minutes, when you know that it's not a barricaded subject, or at least some people know that it's not a barricaded subject, you'd think at that point it's somebody's responsibility to like update the approach, right? And that's sort of just completely, completely outside the bounds of what we're talking about in this report, which I think is interesting. And you said, I mean, I looked through, you know, there's a mention of sort of DPS investigators providing information at the front of the report. There's a lot of references to those in the footnotes. And then there's basically two more references to DPS officers in the rest of the 77 pages. One is basically a passing officer asking a question. And the other uh, substantive reference is to the role uh, that, you know, the regional director for South Texas. Right. Uh, played in a very inaccurate press briefing the day after the shooting and basically kind of tries to absolve him of of being wrong. It's a, and I'm going right. to the quote here. It's, you know, that says Director Escalon, who is not based in Uvalde, had arrived on the scene shortly before the attacker was killed. He did not personally witness the bulk of the day's events, leaving him to depend on secondhand knowledge acquired from other law enforcement officers who had been part of the response. Right. And it's like. And look, you know, we, you know, <laughs> we have to say, look, there's there's definitely. 
you know, looming over this unmentioned in the report is, you know, the embarrassment to the governor for his factually incorrect statements and the earliest on the, you know, the first day and as you know, in, in which the governor had to walk that back and go back and say, I was misinformed is terrible, whatever. But I mean, certainly below the surface, behind the scenes, there is a lot of search for whose fault was that? Well, again, yeah. And, <laughs> and here the best they can say is, yeah, that was because he, he didn't know. And right. it's like, well, okay. So, I mean, well, that's kind of, you know. yeah, I mean, sure. So, I mean, that's kind of, I mean, that's the one, I mean, that's one major absence. I mean, do you want to add anything to the, the absence of DPS? No, I mean, I, you know, well, I mean, I think just in terms of factual update and, and, I have no direct evidence that this timing was not a coincidence, was a yeah, not a coincidence, right. but it certainly aligned with the timing of the report that on Monday, you know, it was, you know, DPS spokes, spokesman announced um, that DPS would be conducting an internal investigation of the response of the response, um, and that you know, uh, and DPS, you know, focused on DPS, but that there was also already a Texas Ranger investigation of the response of all law enforcement that started right away. And there was a kind of implication in in the statement that was quoted in the press saying, um, yeah, you know, uh, this is sort of standard operating procedure. Right. I mean, yeah, you know, absolutely. I was going to write about this in this piece that I posted to the blog today. And, you know, I want to bet it in out. But there's a, you know, it had very much the feel of like, you know, we got this. Nothing to see here, folks. Move on. Yeah, and well, and also, I think the other. Story, I think that's not going to work. Well, but, and that was the other implication was, you know, this is kind of standard. So, like, yeah, you exactly, know. exactly. And I, you know, and it was a Sunday night, so I'm not, you know, no. bitching at anybody who might hear this and it gets back to DPS. But I, I wrote somebody. I mean, I wrote the DPS yeah. email address yesterday, saying because I couldn't find the statement. Right. Right. So, so, so you 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 mentioned the blog piece yeah. that you had written, and I think you know, and so part of that was focused on again the, the omission of of the, of the Department of Public Safety. The other thing that was a big omission, I think you did a really good job with the piece. I think people yeah. should read it. I know I'm gonna say yeah. I think I think it's a good piece. And the truth is, I think you know, just as an aside, it's hard to you know kind of interpret this document verbally like this in a way that sort of is I think feels fully satisfying but I think in the blog piece because you have the text in front of you and you're kind of yeah. referencing what's going on I think you really do a good job of this the other sort of major omission is the role of the weapon that the shooter had right, right. And, and and you know what struck me about that and what really was the burr under the saddle among other things in, in putting that piece together which you know is ultimately I mean, it's got some of the public opinion stuff that we usually emphasize and the stuff we do on the site, but also kind of dwells on the text and, as I keep saying, the rhetorical strategy of the mm-hmm. document. Um, you know, you know the, the weapon that the shooter used, to my mind, based on what I read in the report, yeah. and this really hadn't occurred to me too much, you know, in a very well-formed way until I actually read the report. Yeah. Absolutely. But the report points in multiple places to the importance of the fact that this 18-year-old had this very lethal weapon. You know, the, you know, people are, you know, people will write and say, "Well, you know what you're talking about." You know, what is AR-15 style doesn't mean anything. Assault weapon doesn't Hollow mean anything. You know, I, you know, R-rated podcast. I just think that's bullshit. Right. Right. I mean, this is a weapon that is designed to be, you know, lethal. Yeah. And in in designed to have a lot of firepower. And more to the point, it's not even not that general point. The point is that 
for all the talk about systemic failure and all the talk about failures across the, the right. scope of the agency, one thing and across that the is, school district and across right, the mental health system. One thing system. that is very clear is right. that, and and the report illustrates this in very direct, nicely empirical terms, right. observed terms, right. that the first responders get there, the walls are all shot up, there are bullet holes in the wall, it describes, quote unquote, clouds of drywall dust mm-hmm. because they arrive just after a spate of, of discharges. Right. It describes somebody being killed who was, or injured, she who was, she was injured, not killed, yeah. who was shot through what would appear to be at least two walls. And then it describes a breach that is repelled by law enforcement officers and then gives you video of, you know, allowing for the fact that video is not as necessarily reliable as we think, but that certainly, you know, in conjunction with the text description shows the armed law enforcement officials retreating back to the ends of the hallway Mm -hmm. where they are, you know, safe to stage. And they're clearly worried about being shot through the walls by yeah. this high-powered weapon. And they are clearly in all of the, you know, all of the chat that is, you know, all of the the accounts that emphasize the delay in waiting because they were they wanted better equipment, they wanted the rifle-rated shield. I mean, all of that is predicated on knowledge that there is a high-powered weapon in the room, which they has already repelled them once. Mm-hmm. And which has already demonst- you know, demonstrated that you know whatever munitions he's using will penetrate the walls, so they are not safe approaching the room. Yeah. Now, yeah. how you do a recitation of facts of the case mm-hmm. at the end of that document, which is how the document ends with this very—it's an all—you know—it's a bureau—you know. Look, I get it for clarity's sake, but it's almost bureaucratically perverse in the way that you have this outline document. And the only mentions of guns, you know, is a very weirdly obtuse reference to the fact that he bought the guns and the two assault weapons and the ammunition um, legally after he turned 18 from a licensed gun dealer. And that's it. Where if you're going to talk about the police, you know, quote unquote failure, but the the response there, you know, it is just. To me, it's logically just indefensible well, to not talk about the weapon. Yeah, I mean, the in the intro section, I wrote down, you know, it says that the purpose of the report was to quote critically examine the contributing sorry, critically examine the contributing factors. Right, and it's like, and to your point, you know, how do you how do you square that? I mean, there's a there's a quote, you know, where they have the transcript from Arredondo speaking to the dis to the nine one one dispatcher about, and she asks, you know, do you need SWAT? And he says, and this is the quote, he says. Yes, and they need to be outside of this building prepared because we don't have enough firepower right now. It's all pistol, and he has an AR-15. Yeah, and he mentions the AR-15 twice. Yeah, twice in that exchange. In that call with the Uvalde police dispatch. I mean, and so, and again, you know, it's implicit in the tactical approach. And, you know, not to, I mean, I think that it's reasonable to say this was at all, you know, that there was a, a mistake in judgment. Yeah. You know, in terms of you know treating him as as a barricaded situation rather than active shooter situation, and that they should have gone. I think that is all utterly correct. But look, beyond that decision, I don't see how you explain the psychology of the tactical approach. Right. You know, they want to talk about you know the culture of whatever. I mean, 
there's something else that is out there that is predicated, you know, and is very present among the first responders that is predicated on the firepower that they know is has been deployed by the shooter. And I, you know, and I do not know how you justify. I mean, you know, I, I would anticipate the justification. I don't, you know, I don't. I don't want to second guess. I'll let you know to the extent that people are going to talk about it. We could we could shift to the polling in a second. You know, yeah, but I mean, I think that it is, um, you know, given the polling that we're going to talk about in a second, I don't see how you can look at that and not see the polit, you know, the politics of guns, gun policy, gun safety, what we know about both popular opinion, public opinion, and elite opinion on this, and the positions of the parties given the precedence of how this is played, to not see this as a starkly political omission in the report, and one that, you know, does a disservice. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, you know, it's it's unfortunate, because, I mean, we started the podcast, you know, sort of phrasing the report for what it does, and we're ending by sort of, you know, really highlighting... There's some ways we're doing what the report does. We're saying, hey, we're just here to call balls and strikes. Yeah, well, it's, but, but I mean, you know, I think what it is, is it does raise this sort of issue again, which is, you know, we talked about this, you know, right in the wake of the shooting. I wrote about it, you know, I think the week right. of, and you and I have talked about it since then, but ultimately, you know, this is sort of another entry into kind of the really stagnant politics around this kind of stuff. I mean, even the report even goes on to mention the fact that, you know, the owner of the gun store didn't see anything wrong with them. Now, this was an FBI interviews, although the FBI also interviews other patrons who were there who all basically said, no, he gave off, you know, I think yeah. the quote was, appeared odd and looked like one of those school shooters was yeah. the quote yeah yeah he was all dressed in black one of them says yeah he said you know another described his all black clothing as simply giving off quote bad vibes so yeah. you know i mean the idea that we're not you know going to talk about the fact that oh and, you know i'll just add to this this one piece is you know the, by, by the account given it looks like that this machine was the first time that this attacker may have ever even shot a gun yeah which just sort of speaks to, I mean, again, and you, you sort of read that piece, and again, I'm just sitting here listening to how easy it is for someone to go from having, you know, a horrific idea to implementing it yeah. in a state that basically has no laws limiting gun access, especially if you basically just turned 18. Anyway, but the other thing is, to your point about, you know, it's hard not to look at this as a document, is because it aligns so clearly with the public opinion data. And we'll go through this quick. With the partisan patterns and gun attitudes. Yeah, with the partisan yeah. patterns and gun attitudes. So real quick, right? You know, in June, we asked a number of questions, obviously, about, you know, gun violence, uh, you know, mass shootings, gun control. When we asked about the causes of mass shooting, which we've done a number of times. Uh, Twenty-five percent of Texans blame current gun laws as the major, is the most critical factor that sort of leads to these mass shootings. That's gone up over time. That's the plurality response. That's the plurality. But, but a quarter of people, quarter could, people, could so have been in that. Yeah, twenty <laughs> percent said failures of the mental health system. Thirteen percent said unstable family situations. And just as a side, down the list, seven percent insufficient security at public buildings, which is sort of a yeah. response du jour for these things. Among Democrats, fifty percent say current gun laws. Not surprising, right? Among Republicans, only, I think, 6% say current gun laws, 25% yeah, right. say failures of the mental health system, another 21% say unstable family situation, 13% blame the media, the attention that they give to perpetrators, and then 11% blame insufficient security. So it's ultimately, when you think about what's in the report and what's yeah. not in the report, you know, I mean, the biggest section is about, you know, the, basically about the attacker's mental health kind of leading up to it, yeah. his family situation, there's digs at the media, and then it talks about the failures of the school. So it's a pretty fair description of what the emphasis is in the report. 
Then when we talk about the omission of guns, you know, we asked the question we've asked many times, would the U.S. be more or less safe if more people carried guns? Overall, a plurality of Texans, 43% say less safe, 34% say more safe. But again, 77% of Democrats say less safe. A majority of Republicans, 57% say more safe. So the idea that, you know, removing guns is the response or something is just right. not, it's a non-starter. Having said all that, and, you know, to your point, is like, you know, thinking about systemic issues, yeah. right? You know, ultimately, Texas looks like a lot of other places when it comes to some of these high-profile potential kind of gun safety laws. You know, a nationwide ban on semi-automatic weapons, you know, which is pretty strong policy statement, has yeah. a majority approval, 54%, 39% opposed. But ultimately, that's 84% of Democrats, only 31% of Republicans, 63% of Republicans would oppose a ban on semi-automatic weapons. Yeah. Raising the age to purchase a firearm from 18 to 21, 60% approval, 91% of Democrats, 56% of Republicans. That We'll see what happens with that. There's still 40% yeah. opposed. Red flag law support, 66% of Texans, 89% of Democrats, and Republicans on balance are in favor, 49 support, 40 oppose. Some other attitudes that kind of fall out of this, I think, that are important in the general discussion, attitudes towards the police. 75% of Republicans hold a favorable attitude towards the police, only 11% in unfavorable attitudes. Attitudes towards public schools, the plurality of Republicans, 46%, hold an unfavorable opinion towards the public schools, which is, sort of falls out of the politics that we've been witnessing lately right. that have really politicized schools. 32% uh, hold a favorable opinion. So ultimately, you know, when you think about the emphasis of the report, where the blame is, you know, overlay that the fact that we're in an election year, as you know, you point out, yeah. you know, it. it it's you know, and again, I think the things that we've laid out, it's, it's hard not to look at this and say, you know, this is a this is a this report does a lot to advance our understanding, but it's still a political document. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, I, I wrestled with this a little bit, and in, in thinking about the podcast and right. putting the piece together for the site, and thinking about you know what we're going to do with this going forward. I mean, you know, to to begin to tie it together a little bit. I mean, I, you know, we're better off with the report. Yes, absolutely. And you know, it's. It's a good exercise, and you know, and, but I also think you know it's important, and I think this is you know the space we try to live in at least a little bit is that, you know, it's important to be straightforward about the impact of politics on governance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> you know, to succinctly to put it as succinctly as possible, and you know, to not to not reserve those judgments. Because, you know, there is something, you know, we're still better off for having the report. I mean, to be clear eyed about the report and what it says, yeah. you have to be clear out, I think, about the politics, what? what's in there, why it's put together the way it is and why some things are soft pedal. Well, and whenever anybody says, you know, look, this isn't the time for politics and then hands you and then does a press conference or releases a report, yeah. you know, you kind of got to say, OK, you, yeah, you need we to need to. Yeah. And I and I think that's, you know. You know, we just need to move past. I think that. that's almost yeah. I mean, I think that is something that we just you know. I mean, I, it's in everybody's interest to call bullshit on that, right? You know, in every opportunity you can, in an even-handed, clear-eyed way. But you know, to say you know, yeah, I mean, I, sort of anytime somebody says, "Oh, hey, like this is not the time for politics," you know, make sure you reach for your wallet. Right. Exactly. You know, to say the least. So, you know, I think what we ought to do is, you know, we had a, you know, I. I want to flag a couple of things that you added in the notes that didn't make it into the piece. And, you know, one thing I think we need to come back to and that I'm very interested in, we don't, the data now are as of yet, it's too soon, it's too indecisive yeah. or it's too early to yeah. to be to be definite. But, you know, attitudes towards police on this are very, are going to be very interesting. I mean, after several years now 
of a police the debate about policing being framed one way mm-hmm. this is a very different frame this is a very different frame and i'm curious about the degree to which this will have any durable effects if they are what it will be i'm skeptical <laughs> so so am i um color me skeptical yeah uh, you know and i am too but i mean i think the timing because i I think the number, you know, in terms of the fave unfave, as I recall, between our June poll that the numbers you coded for were attitudes for the police were 52-28. Fave unfave, yep. Um, you know, the, the, you know, they ticked downward a little bit. Yeah. Not a lot. I think it was four, six points, something like that, Probably. maybe. Yeah, I have to go back and look. You know, in that, in that range. So that's why I'm, you know, being very careful here. And if you look at the four or five times we've asked about favorability of the police, there's not a clear, you know, it moves. It jumps around to, to um, events, I mean, I think, in, in a little bit. But, it, you know, but it's an interesting dynamic that we are in right now mm-hmm. that... You know, and there's a couple of different dimensions here because there's the level of government dimension, mm-hmm. you know, and then there's the, you know, the, the policing as a, you know, attitude towards the police as an institution dimension. And then there's and there's also, I'd say, the broader sort of, you know, uh, institutions writ large dimension, right, right. which are all kind of taking hits. And, um, you know, there's something very kind of interesting going on with that. And just, you know, in, in, in terms of just the immediate trade-offs and the you know the you know the mercenary part of politics Mm -hmm. in which if you're looking at blaming the police or blaming policies that you as a candidate in 2022 might have to own in some way right guess who gets blamed yeah that's true (laughs) and um yeah. You know, that may that may well not be durable, but I mean, you know, it's interesting to see, let me just say what I mean. I mean, you see Republican incumbents tapping into purposefully, necessarily. conveniently, <laughs> necessarily, you know, I you know, so tapping into what one can recognize as, you know, an always, you know, uh, the, you know, we've talked about this before, but an interesting kind of cross currents and attitudes about the police because on one hand we see evidence of lots of reflexive respect regard for authority Mm -hmm. order etc particularly in texas we also see in other kinds of ways a skeptical a a skepticism and a reflexive like oh you know get off my back man yeah and republicans tend to tap into the respectful part of that much right. more than they do the anti-authority mm-hmm. part of that but it seems to have suited them at this point <laughs> to, well but i mean in a way you know, but, but, and the other dimension there is the local you know level well, of, thing, it, it, but it's an interesting piece of this that i think you know it, it merits watching yeah i agree i mean it's i agree with you i don't think it's going to be durable but i mean you know oh. been wrong before no but i think i think what i'd agree with this is then i'll kind of wrap up my thing i mean it's it suits them right now and the question is you know who, who is the one who receives you know the bulk of the iron man they've done their best to really focus it on arredondo focus it on the locals you know i'm curious to see what happens with mccraw and all this you know i mean when, yeah. when push comes to shove he went up in front of the senate and you know look i don't he doubled down it was it was borderline performative and i don't believe i'm not saying he doesn't hold the views that he held you know probably very strongly about the police response there but ultimately you know he was casting a lot of blame and it's hard not to look at this and think about you know the winter storm and all of a sudden you know everybody in that small room is gone 
Yeah. Right. So, I mean, one, that's kind of what I'm seeing is, you know, how, how far out, you know, does the water's yeah. edge move? The other thing is, you know, and this is related to that, you know, to me, what's really interesting, it kind of cuts through the report in some ways is, is, is what the level of focus is in the report. And to me, it's yeah. if you really think, what is this report about? It's about what happened in the hallway. It's about what happened in the school. And it's about the attacker. And then it talks in sort of passing terms about systemic issues, but really, you know, systemic in name only. And one of the things about kind of this is, you know, ultimately, whatever, you know, individual issues, you know, that they're pointing to, whether they're pointing to, you know, you know, the infrastructure and the stuff in the school, that could have been any school in Texas. I mean, like, there are a lot of schools that have poor security, and it's going to be very expensive if, you know, if we're going to fix that. And maybe with the comptroller's updating of the revenue estimates, that could some of that could happen. Maybe there'll be some leftover after the property tax reduction. Maybe so. Um, but you know, when you say like there's all these systemic problems, it's like, okay, well, are you going to focus on the response of DPS? Are you going to focus on, you know, the, the agent of the infrastructure of the public school system in Texas of the idea is that we're going to, you know, have to harden all these schools. You know, if we are kind of worried about, you know, the nature of young men being isolated on the internet and having easy access to weapons, and we're going to ignore that last part, but young men being isolated on the internet and lashing out, that's a big problem generally what is the state going to do about that right and there's a lot of stuff that i don't really think that the state is you know i would say you know shown it's either equipped for or interested in really addressing and these are all these kind of things on this systemic edge of it but if we can just you know i mean this is where the political things but if we can just focus this down to what happened in this particular school on this particular day with this particular police chief and this particular shooter it becomes much more manageable of a situation there's there's, i think you're right i think there's a real tension there and i think that um yeah i think that's a good point and i think that um you know the you know what what that points to is you know, a very common phenomena that we see in politics, particularly with issues, you know, that are particularly salient and politically fraught. Mm-hmm. And that is, you know, as you talk about, you know, possible solutions, you know, a lot of that depends on your ability to define the problem in right. a, your own terms. Mm-hmm. And we are... that. That's what we're in the middle of on this right now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, uh, and it's and it's and it's fraud. And I, you know, and I, you know, and I think it's, uh, you know, take an editorial moment, like you know, the old TV casters at the end would say, "Now a editorial comment." I mean, I, you know, I. On one hand, as I've said earlier, you know, we can't be shocked that politics are entering into something that is this important and this salient. Mm-hmm. In an election year, on the other hand, you know, it, it is going to be terrible if we can't have a more comprehensive, real conversation about this. Well, um, and I mean, I'll just say, I, you know, again, <laughs> like my skepticism about the durability. You yeah, know, no, and there's very little evidence that we can. No, and I think that's right, and that's you know, so I guess that's can, the editorial comment is, is that you know, this is you know, this is terrible, which is probably why I stood at my desk last night for four hours and my legs hurt today you know, going through this and working on it. But um, we will post some more, uh, you know, more comprehensive data on this maybe if we if I can think of a way to do it. There were some things I didn't put in the already long post on this, but, you know, some check more. Check out the, the post, though. Some more, yeah, check out the post. Um, I say with all humility. Um, I don't. Thanks to Josh for being here. Uh, thanks to our excellent production team in the audio studio and the liberal arts development studio at UT Austin. 
Thank you for listening. And remember, you can find all the data we've referenced today, much, much more at the Texas Politics Project website. That's texaspolitics.utexas.edu. And we'll be back soon with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 